0: This morning we're going to continue our series out of the book of Job entitled Out of Darkness. I'd like to invite you to join me by taking your Bible or the pew Bible in front of you or your electronic device and join me over in Job chapter 2. Job chapter 2. We'll be looking at verse 11 in just a few minutes here. Job the second chapter. Well, we're on message number four in this series. So far, we've talked about suffering in the world and the problem of evil in our world. We've talked about choosing faith in the midst of suffering, as Job gave us an example of keeping his eyes focused upon God. Last week, Pastor Rosa talked about our feelings are real. This morning, we're going to look at bad counsel, and then next week, we'll look at how to respond to God, and then in the last week of the series, we'll look at the restoration of Job. Just to keep us reminded so that we know the context in which we're operating, I want to remind you of the loss that Job has suffered. Uh, We see in this book that he loses his possessions. He was one of the richest men, if not the richest man, in the portion of the world that he lived. And probably one of the richest men of all time, with all the possessions that he had at that point in time. And we see that he loses all of his possessions in one day. He loses his family the same day as a tornado comes and destroys the home that they were all gathered in, and 10 of his children die on that day. He loses his health later on. He's afflicted to where he has sores from the top of his head to the sole of his feet, and he is constantly itching. And then we saw how he lost his wife's support, I believe, in an emotional outburst. She says to him, why don't you just curse God and die? So Job has had great loss. In chapter 3 that Pastor Rosa covered last week, we saw that feelings are, are real. We shouldn't say to someone, you shouldn't feel like that. That's how they feel. Uh, we see that feelings are necessary for us to operate and live in this world. We have to have feelings. The feelings are God-given. God created us so that we would have feelings. But we also saw that feelings are not authoritative. Be careful following your feelings. Your feelings should not lead you in your life. They are not authoritative. And we also saw last week that feelings are not to override faith, that we put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and we follow Him regardless of how we're feeling. But those feelings are still real. As we've been going through this series, we've had various testimonies from members of our body who have shared how evil has touched their life and have shared about suffering that they have endured. And this morning, we want once again to share one of those testimonies for you. This morning, it will be on video. Please watch this.
1: Hi, I'm Tyler Jones.
2: And I'm Shannon Jones. And we've been married for seven years.
1: And we had our first daughter in 2015.
2: About two years ago, um, August of 2017, we were pregnant with our second child. And um, I had one morning realized that I couldn't remember the last time I felt the baby move. So we ended up making a doctor's appointment to check things out. I had looked at Tyler, and he gave me a thumbs up and a smile because he thought he saw a flicker of a heartbeat on the ultrasound. But when I looked at the doctor's facial expressions, um, his facial expressions were telling me something completely different. The doctor gently put his hand on my knee and said, Shannon, I am really sorry, but there is no heartbeat. And those were the worst words that we could ever possibly hear.
1: So, Annabelle Joy Jones was born on August 26th into the arms of Jesus.
2: Our grief journeys were very different from each other. I became very angry and bitter at God, um, and I started really questioning His goodness. I felt like, how could He give us this precious gift just to take her away from us so soon? Tyler's grandma was an encouragement to me during that time because she also had lost children and she told me to make sure I was still in the word and that I was reading to my soul. But also she had said that in her journey she still knew that Jesus was the Messiah, that he died on the cross for her sins and he rose again on the third day. And as I started processing what she said to me I didn't really understand at first like what Christ's death and resurrection had anything to do with my suffering or my daughter's death but that was the one truth that I didn't doubt in my life at that time I knew that Jesus still was the Messiah and that he died on the cross for my sins and rose again and was still alive to this day so I held on to that truth hoping that it would bring me back the truth that God is good about nine months to a year later is when I finally started understanding that God's goodness was not based upon the good things that he gives us but rather his goodness is based on the things that he doesn't give me which is death and hell I had to start looking around me and seeing I don't deserve a loving husband who leads as well and I don't deserve healthy children um and of course i don't deserve eternity with christ and so i'm so thankful now that my hope is in the fact that christ died for my sins and that he rose again and because of that i know that i will be with christ in eternity and i will get to be with annabelle one day too
1: and during Her first year, it was a struggle for me because I was watching my wife struggle physically, emotionally, um, mentally, um, and spiritually. There was only so much I could do. I could just pray with her and be there for her um, and kind of let God take her on her own journey. I thought I was okay with, you know, losing my daughter, but I felt like I had more peace about it. But it wasn't until probably when she had more peace about it that I started to really process, and I started to feel alone, um, probably about a year later, and I just felt like I couldn't really talk to anybody about it. Um, I felt like Satan was just telling me, like, you're the only one going through this, and nobody really knows, and this is not something you can really talk to, because nobody wants to hear you keep talking about this, Uh, which wasn't true. I could pull anybody aside and talk to them, and, you know, I know that truth now, and it just took some time of me um, just taking a lot of time praying and worshiping and being in the Word and doing devotionals and um, just listening to God and through all of that um, so that I would have comfort that He is the one that can pull me through that. And um, that is what truly ended up giving me peace. It's not people. It's not my wife. It's not my kids. God is the only one that's going to give me that comfort and that peace.
2: Two years later... Um we realized how much we were able to have faith, not because of our strength or because of who we are or our knowledge or our wisdom, or that we were brave or courageous during that time, but solely because of who Christ is and that it was his strength the whole time and it was his courage the whole time. And it was his wisdom that he was giving to us to be able to walk through that valley Never once did he let go of us, even when we might have let go of him. We fight daily for our joy, and there's not a day that goes by we don't think about her or we don't look at our other kids and see that someone is missing, but we have hope and peace of knowing that we will be with her again
1: in eternity. So this is Mercy. She's our oldest daughter.
2: And we chose her name because we are so thankful for God's mercy in our life. And um, she, during this time of suffering, was um, so compassionate to us. And God truly used her to show us um, that his mercies are really new every morning. This is a painting of Annabelle. And... um, Her name means grace and beauty, um, which is why we chose it. And Josiah's name means Jehovah has healed. Um, He has definitely brought us so much joy after we lost Annabelle. And we are so excited because we are expecting another baby boy in April and what's his name, Mercy? His name is Shepherd. Shepherd. Shepherd J. Mm-hmm. And we chose his name because we are so thankful that Jesus is our great shepherd, um, and that He leads us beside still waters and restores our soul.
0: So if you were called to come alongside and to counsel this young couple while they were in the midst of their sorrow and their hurting, what would you say to them? If you were asked to be a counselor to Job after everything that Job went through, what would you say to him. Well, Job had three counselors that come to him. Follow with me, Job chapter 2, beginning with verse 11. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place. Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite, they made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him and when they saw him from a distance they did not recognize him they raised their voices and wept and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven and they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights and no one spoke a word to him for they saw that his suffering was very great. So, three counselors. Now, as we approach the counsel that these three individuals are going to give, it's important that we recognize that even though they are bad counselors, and we'll see that in a moment, not everything they say is wrong. They will get some things right. Also, because it's included in the Word of God, doesn't mean that what they say is correct. The Word of God correctly records what they said, but it doesn't mean that what they were saying was God's view, as we'll see that in just a moment as well. But the Word of God, which is an inspired word, accurately records the words that these men had to say. Now, as counselors, they were not very good. Look at Job's evaluation, Job chapter 16, verse 2. This is what he said. And I put these verses on the screen throughout the rest of the, the message because it'll just make it easier for the flow as we go through. I have heard many such things, miserable comforters are you all. So what's Job's evaluation? You guys are miserable. Be better off that you didn't say anything than the things that you've said. Well, you may say, well, Job's just responding out of his emotions. Well, let's look at God's evaluation, which comes later in Job 42, verse 7. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, my anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. What you've spoken is not correct. Not all the counsel that people will offer to us or give to us is good counsel. Have you ever received bad counsel from someone? Have they told you to do something and you do it, or they've evaluated something and everything made things worse when you followed their advice? Be careful that you're listening to the right voices. But as bad as the counsel was that these three individuals gave, there were some things that they did get right that are recorded for us right here in chapter 2, verse 11. Here's three things that they got right. First of all, they were there. They showed up. Have you ever noticed that when evil has touched your life or when everything is going bad for you, that there are people that you thought were friends that would be there for you, and they just do not show up. They're not there. I've had several individuals share with me through the years how that when they have lost their spouse to to death, how that all their friends have pretty much abandoned them. Where they were included before in social events or invited to dinners or stuff after the death of their spouse, they are no longer included at all. Job's counselors are there for him. They do show up. Secondly, they got this right, they empathized. Look at verse 12. When they saw him from a distance, they didn't recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward We are to weep with those who weep. We are to come alongside those who are in sorrow. They empathized with him. Thirdly, they spent time with Job. Not only do they show up, but they stay there for him. If you'll notice in verse 13... It tells us, and they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, for an entire week, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Oftentimes, people will say to me, and someone just recently said to me, you know what, uh, pastor, uh, they're… Some of what you do I could do, other things you do I couldn't do. I I, I could probably teach, but coming alongside someone when they're suffering, I wouldn't know what to say. Neither do I. Don't think that your pastors have all the answers and that they know exactly what to say appropriately in every uh, setting. There are times that that I go and I just pray to God, Lord, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to share. Please guide and direct me through this. Joseph Bailey, a man who lost three of his children, one at 18 days after surgery, another at five years of age from leukemia, and a third at 18 years when he was in a sledding accident. Now, Joseph Bailey wrote several books. One of the books he wrote is A View from the Hearse. Joseph Bailey said that after burying one of his three sons, he was sitting torn by grief. He said, someone came and talked to me of hope beyond the grave. He talked constantly And I remained unmoved except to wish he would just go away. Another came and sat beside me for an hour or more, listened when I said something, answered briefly, prayed quietly. I was moved. I was encouraged. Job's friends At the first part, get it right. They are there for him. Unfortunately, then, they moved from their silence into speaking. They would have been better off just to have remained silent. When you're counseling someone or when you're coming along beside someone, there's a point in time as the counselor that you have to make an evaluation. You know, what is the problem, what is the issue, uh, what, how do I kind of size this up so that I can give some direction or some wisdom or some guidance to the people. So the three counselors, the three friends of Job, are going to each make their evaluation of Job's situation. First of all, we'll look at the evaluation of Eliphaz, Eliphaz. Now, the book of Job from chapter 4 on goes into a series of the counselors will speak, Job will respond to the counselors. And so Eliphaz will speak three separate times to Job, right? First of all, in chapters 4 and 5, His evaluation is, no one suffering can be innocent. In Job chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, this kind of sums up his argument here. Remember, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. Job, you are suffering because you're guilty. You're not innocent. You have sown this. You are just reaping that which you have sown. That's his first evaluation. His second evaluation in chapter 15 when he speaks is this. No one who fears God can be suffering. If you are fearing God, you will not suffer. Job 15, verses 15 and 16. Behold, God puts no trust in his holy ones, and the heavens are not pure in his sight. How much less one who is abominable and corrupt, a man who drinks injustice like water. Job, you are reaping exactly what you have sown. You haven't feared God, so therefore, that's why you are suffering. And then in his third speech to Job, contained in Job chapter 22, his argument was, anyone experiencing great evil had to do something very wrong. Chapter 22, verses 5 to 11, is not your evil abundant? There is no end to your iniquities. For you have exacted pledges of your brothers for nothing and stripped the naked of their clothing. You have given no water to the weary to drink, and you have withheld bread from the hungry. The man with power possessed the land, and the favored man lived in it. You have sent widows away empty, and the arms of the fatherless were crushed. Therefore snares are all around you, and sudden terror overwhelms you or darkness, so that you cannot see, and a flood of waters covers you. Job, all of your misery is because of the unrighteous life that you have lived. You are experiencing this great evil because you did something very, very, very wrong. Now, isn't this totally different than God's evaluation of Job? Remember, what did God have to say about Job? He was an upright man. Well, so much for the advice of Eliphaz. That would be real encouraging to you, right? You've experienced all kind of evil, and Eliphaz is your counselor. Well, his second friend, Bildad, he's going to weigh in. And his first argument found in chapter 8 is material prosperity is linked to righteous behavior. This is sort of the health and wealth gospel. Uh, Job chapter 8, verses 5 and 6. If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely then He will rouse Himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. What you had was taken from you, Job, because of your behavior. If you just lived righteous, everything will be given back to you. He speaks again in chapter 18. He sums things up this way. If you are being punished, you must have done something wrong. Chapter 18, verse 21 Surely such are the dwellings of the unrighteous. Such is the place of him who knows not God. You are suffering. All these calamities have happened to you because you do not know God. And then in chapter 25, he speaks for the third time. And this time, Bildad says, you cannot be righteous before God chapter 25 verses 4 to 6 how then can man be right before God how can he who is born of a woman be pure behold even the moon is not bright and the stars are not pure in his eyes how much less man who is a maggot and the son of man who is a worm What's his message to Job? Job, you're experiencing all this stuff because you're a maggot and you're a worm. Now that would really encourage you, right? If you left the counselor's office and he said, all the bad things in your life are happening because you're a maggot and a worm. Next we have the evaluation of Zophar. About the only thing I can say good about Zophar is he only speaks twice instead of three times. Because his arguments are about the same. Because his first argument in chapter 11 is this. Job, you deserve worse than you've experienced. Job 11, verses 4 to 6. For you say, my doctrine is pure and I am clean in God's eyes. But oh, that God would speak and open His lips to you. And that He would tell you the secrets of wisdom. For He is manifold in understanding. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. Job, you deserve to be treated worse. You deserve worse treatment than losing everything you own. You deserve worse treatment than seeing all ten of your children die. You deserve worse treatment than physically failing. You deserve worse treatment than your wife telling you to curse God and die. Job, God's been easy on you so far. You deserve something worse. And then he speaks in chapter 20, and he says you are suffering because of your wickedness. Chapter 20, verses 27 to 29. The heavens will reveal his iniquity, and the earth will rise up against him. The possessions of his house will be carried away, dragged off in the day of God's wrath. This is the wicked man's portion from God, the heritage decreed for him by God. You are only getting, Job, what your wickedness demands. See, Bildad, Zophar, and Eliphaz, are all have the same mindset as they are evaluating the troubles of Job. And it's a, a mindset that often comes even from Christian people, that is, if you are suffering, it's because of your wickedness. Remember the disciples asked Jesus about the blind man. You know, who sinned that this man was born blind? Did he sin or did his parents sin? That all evil in the world, all suffering in the world, is a direct response to personal sin or personal iniquity. See, it goes sort of like this. The wicked suffer, the righteous prosper. God is righteous. God punishes sin and rewards righteousness sickness is punishment, so what have you done wrong? I, I've seen this at play. Years ago, when I was pastoring another church, I went to the hospital. I've shared this story before. There was a lady in the hospital, she was having surgery the next morning. I went to see her that night to pray for her, and when I walked into her room, she was just crying uncontrollably. And I said, what's wrong? Well, so-and-so from our church was just here, and she told me, if I would just repent of my sins, I wouldn't have to have my gallbladder removed tomorrow. See, that's how that theology plays itself out. Well, in chapter 32 of the book of Job, There's a fourth individual that shows up, Elihu. He's a young man. Now Elihu is going to put his finger on what the problem really is. He let the older men speak, but now he's going to sum things up. He is actually going to speak from chapter 32 through chapter 37. And his argument is going to be that the suffering of the righteous is not a token of God being against you, but of His love. It's not a punishment for their sins, for of the righteous who follow God, our sins have been paid for, but it's a refinement of their righteousness. It's not a preparation for destruction, but it's a protection from destruction. And Elihu, first of all, he's going to rebuke Job. Now you remember at the end of chapter 2, as we read about Job and the evaluation, Job did not sin with his lips. And Job handled as everything was poured down upon him, he handled things in a godly way. But throughout the book, as his counselors are telling him what a worm he is, what a maggot he is, how terrible he's behaved, Job defends himself before them. And as he defends himself, he quits focusing just on God and starts talking about his own righteousness. Righteousness. So at some point throughout the book, Job begins justifying himself rather than justifying God. And Elihu will tell him, chapter 32, verse 2, then Elihu, the son of Berichel, the Buzite of the family of Ran, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. Now, how do we know this is correct? Because God doesn't rebuke Elihu as he rebukes the other counselors. The second thing that Elihu does is he speaks to Job's counselors, and he is critical of Job's counselors because they have no answers other than to blame Job. Job 32.3 He burned with anger also at Job's three friends, because they had found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. See what the counselors did? They don't understand what's going on. They don't have the perspective, the big perspective of God being at work. So when they see the trouble that Job is experiencing, they only have one answer for it. It's Job, it's because of your behavior, it's because of your sin, it's because of what you have done. Because in their minds and in their theology, they have no other way to explain evil, and so anyone who suffers must be guilty of sin. Earlier in the message, I talked to you about Joseph Bailey. In his book, A View from the Hearse, he tells the story of the day his son died from cancer. He had returned to the clinic to thank them for the kindness and care of his son. He spoke to the receptionist. She motioned toward a woman whose son was playing quietly with toys in the waiting area. He has the same cancer your son had, she said. Why don't you go over and see if you can talk with her? Bailey reluctantly went over to sit next to her, and he whispered to the mother out of the hearing of her boy, it must be hard bringing him here for the treatments. Hard, she turned with anguish in her eyes. I die every time I have to bring him in. What makes it worse is that I know it's not going to stop the cancer and that he's going to die. Uncomfortable, Bailey ventured. Still, it is of some comfort to know that when that happens, there is no more pain and suffering and that they go to a better place. No! No! the hardness in her voice. When he dies, I'm just going to bury him in the cemetery and I'll never see him again. Bailey wanted to leave. It was uncomfortable for him to be reminded of his own loss and more uncomfortable to speak with the woman who obviously had not any hope. But then he spoke quietly, I buried my boy yesterday, and I've only come to thank the doctors and nurses for their kindness. I know what you're feeling, but I also know that there is a better life for my son now. How could you believe such a thing, she challenged. And then Joe Bailey told her about Jesus and the cross. See, what's wrong with the arguments of Job's three friends? No one suffering is innocent. Look to the cross. For there on the cross, the innocent died for the guilty. No one who fears God and lives right will suffer Look to the cross because they're the perfect one. The one who was in complete harmony with his Father suffered and died. You had to have done something very wrong or you wouldn't be suffering. The one who was spotless and without sin was upon the cross look to the cross right living will make you prosper and will make you rich look to the cross the one upon the cross did not have a place to lay his head the one upon the cross was buried in a borrowed tomb look to the cross If you're suffering, you deserve worse. Look to the cross. Because there the sinless Son of God shed His blood so that the guilty could go free. He took upon Himself our sins so that all who will put their faith and trust in Him will be able to live. Jesus, who did no wrong, suffered and endured pain. Look to the cross. If you're here this morning and you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and many times one of the big obstacles of people putting their faith in Him is that they, they... They have such a difficult time with this question of evil in our world. And they can't understand it. Look to the cross. Jesus died on the cross to deal with evil and to deal with sin and to deal with suffering. And dear Christian friend, whatever you may be going through, Jesus who suffered on the cross was just like we are and he is able to come to our side and comfort us. Look to the cross.